Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on the show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about specific science-related topics, such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today we're joined by Susan Gruders, consumer advocate, PhD student, policy analyst, and research associate on antimicrobial resistance. In this episode, we talk about antimicrobial resistance, how she got started, what she is passionate about, examples of her work, and what others are doing to curb resistance, advice and suggestions on getting involved, and much, much more. Some of her titles were independent contractor, director of research and education, food safety research and policy associate, policy analyst. What drew you to this? Like, what was the thing that said, this is for me? Well, it's curious. It's sort of a roundabout way to get there, right? Finding our passion is is a, a tough thing. So when I was first going for an undergraduate degree, I was on music scholarship. And I played the clarinet and the bass clarinet and knew that it wasn't going to be a career, knew that it would always be an avocation, but it was most likely not going to lead to a vocation. And so from there, I ended up working in restaurants. And instead of working, you know, front of the house, I worked with people know as back of the house. So I worked as, as a line cook and also went back to music school that I had gone to over for a summer program and helped run their kitchen. And it was a kitchen that we made bread every day and there was homemade food every day and it, things were made from scratch. And I had a chance to handle procurement for the kitchen. So making sure that the food that we were serving the students was was healthy and, and, and good. So that was that was sort of how I got into food. And then from there I knew I needed to finish a bachelor's degree because I working in, in kitchens can be hard and exhausting and tiring. And I wasn't sure if I was going to go back for a degree in culinary arts. So I looked at Johnson and Wales. I also looked at CIA, so the Culinary Institute of America. And then I also, I was living in Vermont at the time. And so I also looked at the University of Vermont, which had a nutrition and food science program. And so because of the background that I'd already completed, undergraduate degrees, I was able to finish my undergraduate in, I think, two years time, along with testing out of a few food classes because of my practical skills in the kitchen as well. So that was how I got into food science. I was really interested in how food could heal. So I was interested in nutritional benefits of food. I was interested in knowing about different vitamins, minerals, nutrients, and and how human digestion and how uh, metabolism works. Coursework, though, also had classes that were focused in food microbiology. So that's where you're finding out that E. coli and salmonella and listeria and all of these are bacteria that can sometimes be found in food that we eat. Mm -hmm. So that's how I ended up getting into the nonprofit world. So when I finished my bachelor's degree, there was a nonprofit that was based at the time in Burlington, Vermont. I worked with individuals who had, who became advocates around food safety issues because they had personal experiences with foodborne illness. You know, one in six people will get a foodborne illness every year in this country. There are also people who are hospitalized and about 4,000 deaths that occur, and most of them preventable from something we've eaten. And so the injustices that are there felt like they needed correcting and felt like they needed as much help as we could get. The nonprofit had its roots in reporting laws, so public health reporting laws. So if you think back, it's actually 25 years since the Jack in the Box outbreak occurred. And at that point, there were kids in Washington State and California 
getting sick, but the reporting laws were such that the states weren't communicating their illnesses across state lines. And so the nonprofit was really wonderfully involved in, in working at some early state reporting laws for communicable diseases, in, including E. coli and 57H7. I guess that's sort of a roundabout way of how I got involved. And also my dad's best friend has a wonderful restaurant in, in McMinnville, Oregon. And I used to love as a kid hanging out in the back of that restaurant and learning about making pasta and learning about making food and learning the joys that come with homemade food. And so Nick's Italian Cafe, it, it's still in business and it's now run by his daughter. Yeah, so that's how that's how I got into food science. And then the nonprofits I've worked at throughout my career, and then also have worked Vermont Department of Public Health, worked on cardiovascular screening, doing questionnaires and work there. And then recently, I've been working with Keep Antibiotics Working. It's a coalition of nonprofits that come together trying to address possibly inappropriate uses in of antibiotics in food animal agriculture. And, and that inappropriate has, you know, some language that's curious. Some might say overuse, inappropriate use, injudicious use. So just thinking about what uses of antibiotics occur in animal agriculture that we maybe can, you know, take our foot off the accelerator to prevent antibiotic resistance from occurring through that selective pressure. And I'm a lifelong learner, so I've gone back to school. So after the Bachelor's Science in Nutrition and Food Science, I did a Master's of Public Health and Epidemiology. And now in school, veterinary preventive medicine, finishing up a PhD, all while still contracting. You originally got into food science because you wanted to see like the positive aspects, kind of like how to make people better. Before we jump into the negatives, what are there are there things that you've taken from that knowledge that you've incorporated into your life? I think vitamins are just a way of making expensive tea. Yeah. Um, so I think I think the best way we can get our, our nutrients and our, our minerals and our vitamins is from food itself. And the more that we, the more that nutritionists and others have studied that, the more we realize that eating a whole foods, plant-based diet, there are so many benefits to that. I, start, I still eat meat. I'm very careful about where it's sourced from and who raises it. And so I, I also have this funny little thing. Anybody who's ever gone out to eat with me knows that I take home leftovers because just a personal thing of mine. If an animal has been slaughtered for my meal, I think it's important to eat all that we are given. There is something just that seems wrong with throwing away animal flesh. And so although I'm careful about where where and what animal protein I eat, I, I do still eat it. But yeah, I think getting our nutrients and vitamins from from food sources as opposed to from supplements and others is really kind of the best way that you can incorporate nutrition and health into into your eating habits. Yeah, we don't have a lot of prepackaged, pre-made foods in our house. A lot of it is made from scratch. That's awesome. Additionally, if you like pay for something, you should always try and get all of it. But too, like if something had to die for you to get it, you should unless it's like really bad, like it like, like rotting or something, you know, like I yeah, just eat it. Food waste is a major issue and so is food insecurity. And so the idea uh, of those of us who are lucky enough to have enough to eat we certainly shouldn't be wasteful with what we have. And so, yeah, I try and minimize our own personal household, you know, food waste, as well as whenever we eat out, trying to minimize what restaurants would, would have as food waste. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, if you take it home, then it's like your dinner. Then you don't have to cook. So uh-huh. you get to be lazy that day or, you uh-huh. know, lunch, depending on why you want to look at it. So <laughs> you mentioned that you're kind of specific on, on like how you source your food. Is there like good websites where people could learn more so they could, you know, educate themselves? Oh, so this is curious, and this is something that brings me into the advocacy world and some of the advocacy work that we've done. So the Agricultural Marketing Service at the United States Department of Agriculture is who handles food labeling. You can use natural on a product, and natural 
can include food animals that are raised with antibiotics. Antibiotics are naturally occurring sort of defense mechanisms, if you will, of bacteria themselves. And so it's funny how how what we think might be good for us and the label might be used as a marketing ploy, might not have the benefits that individual consumers are really looking for or think that they're getting. So so that's one area is, is knowing what's behind a food label. And there have been others who work with Keep Antibiotics Working, our coalition, <laughs> that have done more on the food labeling issue. Consumers Union has done a fair amount on the food labeling issue, and they've put out some good some good work on what's in a food label and what to look for when you go to a grocery store. And it's tough because raised without antibiotics ever, surely that's ideal. But if you do have a sick animal, I think it's appropriate to treat them. And so you don't want to run up against humane issues. And so, you know, there's animal welfare approved labeling. So it's it's sort of, I think it depends on your own ideology. And so, yeah, it, it sort of depends on just what, what you're interested in, in, in purchasing. But there are labels out there that are more meaningful to one's own ideology than others. And so that um, Consumers Union, I think, is the one who's done the most on what labels are behind, what antibiotics are used in food animal production. And so that's one thing to look at. Yeah, the Agricultural Marketing Service, I mean, they do a lot of really good and they have they have a way of validating and verifying what labels can go on to food and but there's I just use natural as an example of improvements that can be made. And so that's sort of this you know that's sort of the advocacy. Sometimes the devil's in the details. And so knowing who and where and what is responsible in your federal government for areas of food that you're interested in. Because even though the USDA is responsible for that marketing and those labeling, the actual oversight of what antibiotics can be used in food animal production falls to the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, and the Center for Veterinary Medicine. And so even just knowing who's responsible. And then if there were an outbreak that had a bacteria that was associated with an antibiotic resistance mechanism, the CDC, you know, would be the ones to investigate that. So just knowing different places in the federal government to go for different sources of information can sometimes be a little a little tricky as a consumer. And so that's why I think that the nonprofit world and consumer advocates play such a vital role in helping decipher and, and navigate a lot of that for the rest of us. So, yeah. So anyway, Keep Antibiotics Working, that coalition is, is who I've spent, oh goodness, a, a large part of my time with even at nonprofits before that I, I worked for as a part of that coalition. What are some things to be hopeful for? You know, you've worked in this on these things for a while. What are some things that maybe have changed for the better that you've either been a part of? Yeah. So one of my favorite um, investigative journalists is Maren McKenna. And she writes for National Geographic. She's written for Wired. She's written for a number of places. And she has written a book recently called Big Chicken. Here in the UK, it's called Plucked. (laughs) And it looks at antibiotic use in the poultry, particularly chicken, the broiler industry, over the years. And there has been a sea change in, in how chickens are raised and the reduction of antibiotics in chicken production to the point where most are the majority chickens that are raised are raised now without antibiotics. And that is, and if they aren't already, they're getting there, but there are, there are promises mm-hmm. and commitments. And a lot of that had to do with Purdue. So Purdue Farms, um, they have a wonderful veterinarian there. And also I think really uh, good leadership that uh, believes in corporate responsibility that saw what consumers, consumer advocates were concerned about and made an effort to really change. And so that industry has changed remarkably in just the time that I've been involved 
And Marin does an incredible job in, in Big Chicken of explaining the science. So she also has a TED Talk on antibiotic resistance. Um, if anybody's interested in, in learning more in the you know, in, in 20 minutes, she does a, she does the best job of almost anybody I know being able to take take that issue and, and explain it. So I would say that that's really hopeful, that, that change is possible, that we've seen it happen. Ultimately, society will benefit as a result of it. So that's yay, yay chicken industry. <laughs> yeah. Over a course of how many years did that change happen? Was it like five to 10 or... Well, it's sort of curious why antibiotics are first used in animal production in the first place. We saw, so we, and early on, antibiotics were used because there was this economic benefit. So chickens that were raised with antibiotics in their feed were growing faster. There was weight gain and there were health benefits that weren't fully understood. So you could use antibiotics up until very recently as a growth promotant. So that could be a labeled use on an antibiotic. You could use an antibiotic in food animal production as a growth promoter. And luckily, that idea is no longer a good one. It's one that the FDA no longer supports, and it's one that the rest of the world is no longer backing. And so the United Nations, a few years, had a general assembly meeting. They decided to address the issue of antibiotic resistance, and that meant not only in uh, physicians prescribing practices, but also in agricultural settings. And one of the things that has come out of that is that using antibiotics for growth promotion and economic reasons is no longer an appropriate use of antibiotics. And and that's changing not just in the States, but around the world. And so in that book, she details where and when antibiotics were first used in chicken production. And then the benefits they, they saw from growth promotion uses. And then also some of the you know, kind of the deleterious health consequences you saw even in chicken production from those uses and how industry had to then change. So, yeah, so that's that's something that has happened in not only in my lifetime, but even before my lifetime. So the, the use of antibiotics started almost as soon as they were discovered for human medicine, they started being used in animal agriculture, even, even against warnings. I mean, there were warnings that were put out there because we knew resistance would develop, which is interesting. That gets into the sort of the work I'm trying to do now discover some of the mechanisms of, of antimicrobial resistance because there are different ways that that bacteria can evade antibiotic treatments. All right. Well, that was the hopefulness. So I know well, maybe that wasn't very hopeful, but the hopefulness is that things can change. Let's say you have a house, right? And you're like, hey, there's a fire. Is the house burnt down, currently on fire, currently slightly on fire? Like how big, like if we're the house and this issue oh, was the house. Yeah, like, is the house burnt okay. down? Like, where are we in the stage of, like, alertness? Like, are we, like, the firefighters so, are coming, we have time? Or is it, like, the house is on fire, we got to move really, really, really fast? So, I think when, I'll go back to the, the, the UN General Assembly meeting. When they decide to address antibiotic resistance, the only other health issues that they have addressed are Ebola or HIV. So, the <laughs> fact that antibiotic resistance is on that same level should be an indication to the world and everybody who uses an antibiotic. You know, we should all think about how we're using this this resource and, and this essential medicine. Because if we misuse it, resistance develops. And we're gonna we're gonna get to a world where a skinned knee or a sore throat, you know, because of a bacterial infection may may get to the point where we're not able to treat them with antibiotics anymore. And in some ways, we're there. I mean, oftentimes when you go to a doctor, say for, you know, as a woman, you might have a urinary tract infection. They are now doing susceptibility testing when they send that uh, bacterial culture out to see what antibiotic to treat with. 
And a lot of hospitals now had stewardship programs in place too, so that they know what that what species of bacteria they're treating and whether the antibiotic that they're using is appropriate for it. So yeah, I think the house is I don't know. I think I think there are a number of us who have who have felt that maybe the house was the house was on fire and we had to save it. And I think there are also those among us who who saw, you know, the the smoke and thought, where's the fire? And how how do we make sure, you know, we we combat this as soon as possible and prevent the fire from spreading? And so I would think of it more that way. I would think that there there have been those of us in the advocacy world who, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, who have seen smoke and thought we have to address this because if we don't address this sooner, the fire could get out of control. And so yeah, there's been an urgency to the work that I think the world is now Recognize. Bill Gates is working on eradicating malaria. Is it ever possible? And this will tell you how much I know about bacteria. Could we just like eradicate the bacteria that bug us? Like, is it possible just like wipe them out? No, no. So the answer is no. And for a long time, we've thought about doing that. And so for a long time, that was the way infectious diseases were thought about. We thought about, well, if you have this infection, how do you wipe out that bacteria? And there are ways we can do it safely. So you can do it with vaccines and you can do it with other ways. However, Bacteria don't exist alone. They exist in biofilms. They exist in our guts. They exist on our skin. So the idea that bacteria are bad is somehow, um, uh, I, I think, doing them injustice. We we now know more about our microbiome than um, we have any time in the past, and we're learning every day about microbiome. And so bacteria are constantly in an ecology where they are competing for nutrients and competing for space and competing for, you know, just just to preserve their own their own lives. And so if, if you be the bug, if you will, you know, what do you need to survive as a bacteria? Well, you need water, you need, you know, food sources, you depending on whether you're an, an anaerobe or a facultative anaerobe or an aerobic organism, you might need no oxygen, you might need some oxygen, or you might need all oxygen. And so that environment, you know, also dictates what bacteria species you'll find there. And so I think thinking about bacteria as bad has been really problematic. And that's why when you have food that is so sanitized that there, you know, and it's so processed that we've realized that there are health consequences to that as well. And so things like yogurt that have natural cultures of bacteria in them, um, you know, we found out that there are some probiotics, prebiotics, which can be very helpful. Now you can't see my air quotes because this is a, this is just a, an audio interview, but you, you know, the, <laughs> but you know, there, there are, there are real benefits to, to bacteria species, even being in our food we eat. You know, we think about what's the big drink now, kombucha, you know, it's a fermented food product. Think about sauerkraut. Those, some of those fermented foods have amazing health benefits. And the reason they have good health benefits is because of the bacteria cultures that are in them. Thinking about wiping out bacteria. Well, only the bad ones. Only the bad, but, but, but what's a bad one? What's a good one? The ones that give yeah, you streptococcus, so, right? <laughs> so right? streptococcus, yes. Yeah. So streptococcus, sure, there could be, there can be some bacteria species that can cause illness. But other other species within that same, you know, other other serotypes or other, you know, genotypes in that same species might be beneficial. So there are lots of E. coli that we have in our guts all the time that can be really beneficial to us. But certain types, E. coli 0157H7, which produces shigatoxin, can cause kidney failure. That's certainly a bug we don't want in our food system. That's a bug we would never want to be infected with. And so there are ways that industry can now test for them. They can do rapid diagnostic testing. They can do test and hold. With food products, they have been able to innovate ways to prevent to prevent cattle 
and others from from having those bacteria in their in their digestive systems and in ways that they can prevent food from from reaching consumers. So yeah, what is a bad one? A bad one is a one we would call a pathogen, bacteria that can cause human illness. We call pathogens. And so yes, how we treat pathogens is there a way to eradicate pathogens? And we've seen examples of where that works and how that works, but bacteria as a whole, I think we should maybe think about competitive exclusion. And that's something where the U.S. is a little bit behind maybe the rest of the world. And if you could if you could think about ways of populating animal guts or populating our own guts with bacteria that are beneficial to us that could outcompete pathogens, that is one way to solve the problem. So outcompeting them on their own turf rather than maybe throwing antibiotics. You know, even just thinking about being a bug, like what, what do beneficial bacteria maybe need nutrient-wise that pathogens might not be able to utilize so that you could tip the balances of the scale. So that there are there are people yeah, so there are people who are thinking about that now and there are there are alternatives to antibiotics. A few charitable trusts put out a report not too long ago on alternatives to antibiotics that look at at various ways we could think about trans and, and alternatives in ways that still benefit food animal production and still benefit from you know producers, but but don't rely on antibiotics. I went to a fascinating meeting where people were talking about chestnuts because of the tannins uh, that are in chestnuts. That chestnuts have a way of, there is there, there are nutrients that are in chestnuts that if you give them to animals, it can tip the balance of what bacteria are in those guts. And so we think about foods with tannins in them. We think about other, other nutrients. There are ways to sort of you know, make sure that we have healthier bacteria than pathogens by certain nutrients that bacteria use. So it's, it's a neat time to be involved in science. It's a neat time to be involved in advocacy. We're always learning. I'm a lifelong learner. And so there are solutions out there, but we need to maybe think about the problem differently than we have in the past. Yeah, you opened my eyes to a different way of doing it because before I would think of it kind of like whack-a-mole, you know, like hitting them all as they come up. But think of it more like promoting the right things. And that's that's the danger with drug-resistant ones is like you kill off the competition and then you make the one super. So like, yeah, I like that idea. That's much more nuanced. And it's like kind of like, uses uses the bacteria to our advantage like that's really smart i like that i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna research more about that where where can someone go to learn more about that like i i, I had no idea that that was a strategy well and it might not be everybody i mean i think there certainly are people out there who's still thinking about whack-a-mole you know and how do we how do we you know get rid of this one pathogen and we've seen it even with vaccines against certain salmonella well, once we eliminate that one strain of salmonella, another strain of salmonella will overtake in a population. Is that strain going to be more pathogenic? And maybe we, you know, there, there could be um, unintended consequences of some of the things we've done. That's why I think looking at ecology of bacteria is probably a, a better way to go. And so Pew is the one place I can think of right now who's done a report on it. There was the meeting that I went to was at OIE in Paris, and that is so that if it's a chief veterinary medical officer is from every country, but every country has a veterinarian who participates in OIE. And they they had a meeting on alternatives to antibiotics. And they've had more than one meeting. And I believe that those sessions are public. And I believe that the, the research that's come out of there is public. If not, certainly the researchers that attend and the people who were asked to be speakers, their research would be able to, to be found through that site. So... Yeah, so you know it's a, it's an international area, of course, and so that's um, that's why not just the Pew Charitable Trust is a place to look for alternatives, but also OIE. So jumping into what you've been working, which hopeful, unhopeful, I don't know, but uh, interesting, you know, no matter what. What are 
Because you're kind of crusading right now, right? Like you're trying to like help foodborne elk not be as big of a problem, right? As a summary of what you're working. Yeah, I mean that's been my career to this point. And then what what got me really interested in antimicrobial resistance was when you have a bacteria that has an antibiotic resistant or resistances as part of that bacterial illness it changes how doctors can treat that illness. So yeah, so not only antibiotic resistant bacteria, but foodborne pathogens that, that have antibiotic resistance as part of them. Yeah, so that's where I've been, that's where I've been focusing my career recently. So more, more nuanced, more focused. And is that where you're, because you're, you're close to finishing your PhD, right? Like you're... Oh, I feel like I've been close to finishing my PhD for years. And anybody who's ever done a PhD, it feels like it is a very long process. So we're looking at... Um, so there are different ways that bacteria can develop resistance to antibiotics and different ways that they can evade antibiotic mechanisms. Some are through natural mutations, so DNA gyrase. So that is... So if we think about, oh, I don't know how, how in the weeds we want to get for this podcast, but... Into the but weeds. There are, there are simple... There are simple... I shouldn't say simple... There are slight um, genomic mutations in, in DNA, just simple sequencing changes that can change expression that will allow bacteria to survive in the presence of antibiotics that are meant to, to, to kill them or to keep them from multiplying. So that is one way there's, there's mutation. There's also efflux pumps. So bacteria have this amazing ability when they have something in their environment that comes into their cell, they have a way of kicking it right back out. And that would be an efflux. And then there's another way that is through an enzymatic reaction where the bacteria produce an enzyme that can literally pull apart the antibiotic and make that antibiotic no longer effective. And so that's what I, that's the area that I'm working in right now because these enzymes are often gene cassettes and these gene cassettes, I love the name, and I'm glad it's a name, because if you think about a cassette, you could put it in multiple layers. You can take a cassette and have it work in multiple areas. Well, that's how gene cassettes that are able to be incorporated into uh, an element called an integron. So gene cassettes that are, are mobile and are able to be found in different integrons, those integrons are sometimes found in different species, on different plasmids. And so it's it's mobile genetic elements. And so I'm interested in some of those antibiotic resistant enzymes that the bacteria have and can exchange between themselves, but also can exchange between species when you have say, an integron with a gene cassette that's on a plasmid and those plasmids can then be conferred between bacterial species. So that's I'm interested in and sort of those enzymatic reactions and what, what makes those enzymatic reactions happen, particularly metallo-beta-lactamases. And the metallo is exactly what it sounds like. It's a metal. So some of these bacteria are resistant to sort of the highest, one of the highest drugs we have on our uh, medicine shelf. If you think about, you know, penicillins and tetracyclines maybe being low on the medicine shelf and then cephalosporins being maybe higher on the medicine shelf. And then you think about carbapenems being really high on the medicine shelf. These these antibiotic resistance, the metallobeta-lactamases, have a way of pulling apart not only the carbapenems, but they can also pull apart uh, the cephalosporins and they can also pull apart penicillins. You have a bug that has one of these and it, it, can, be, it can be pretty bad news because a physician would have a hard time finding an antibiotic that could treat that could treat a patient. So it depends on the species and it depends on a few other things. But these these are the, the if when we think about superbugs, they usually confer not resistance to one antibiotic or two antibiotics, but more than three classes of antibiotics. And if you have an 
they call extended spectrum beta-lactamases, so an ESBL. When you have an ESBL, it, it's that it can re- confer resistance to more than one class of beta-lactam, and penicillin, cephalosporin, carbapenem, those are beta-lactams, and that has to do with the actual biochemical structure of the antibiotic, and so there's a beta-lactam ring. That ring is what gets pulled apart by these enzymatic reactions. And so, no, that's what I'm, inter- that's what I'm interested in studying. I'm interested in finding out why and how these gene cassettes move and what we can do to maybe tip the balance. So, what? Well, which just sounds utterly fascinating. I, I'm glad you think so. I think most people would not want me at a dinner party. <laughs> well, you got to find the right dinner parties, you know, like you got to find the people who appreciate you. Like if you could just like open a window five years in the future, you have your PhD. Where do you want to be with it? Like, where do you want to take this this awesome knowledge of cassettes and how bacteria can interact with antibiotics? Where do you want to be applying it? Do you want to stay in the same nonprofits or segue into something else? Yeah, so it's curious. So I've done a lot of things already just as a consumer advocate that have been incredible experiences. So there's the National Advisory Committee on Microbiological Criteria for Foods. Mm-hmm. We often refer to that as NACMIF because it's a little bit easier. Not a perfect acronym, you know, so, but... So there we, I've, I was a consumer representative to that, which is a federal appointment for two terms. So each term is two years and then came back and helped as a technical expert on another term. And so we've dealt with everything from norovirus to uh, school lunches to salmonella. And so that is that type of work I've really enjoyed because it gives science and gives a perspective on issues that our regulatory bodies are facing. And so they they have this group of advisors and we sit around and we try and think about the issue and try and tackle it and try and make recommendations that are science-based. So I think I, I love being involved in, in issues like that. The Food Advisory Committee that was at the FDA for a while, we, we had a charge put in front of us that was trying to figure out listeria and what might qualify as a ready-to-eat food. And so I really enjoyed that type of engagement because it, it's where you take the knowledge that you've gained and the the work that you've read and being able to apply the science. And so a lot of a lot of researchers I know sort of they don't the, the communication of that research and the communication of those scientific findings, I think, is where Marin McKenna has a place and Tara Smith has a place. Even folks from Politico and Court, Helena butmiller Evich is a wonderful writer for Politico and Chase Purdy has been a great writer and, and other researchers where where the the science that's being done can then be put in a place in the public setting where people can understand it better. Because I think a lot of science, when it's done, if there isn't a translation of that science to the general population, there's a problem. And so I guess what I'd like to work in next is is translating science to to the public. And I'm not sure what 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 realm that will be in. I I imagine I'd international work because this is an international problem might be where I find myself but not just on a on a national and federal level but um, thinking about it in an international level so how do we translate the sciences there to applications that can change the way we produce our food I'm glad you asked me to think about that I hadn't thought yeah. about that yet. <laughs> well, I, hope, I hope I didn't give you an existential crisis so uh... no not at all because I, I mean one of the things when you finish up a PhD you want to make sure that you are qualified to work in an academic setting. I mean, that's one of the reasons they have you go through writing a grant proposal. And one of the reasons they have you, you know, look to seek funding to work on your science and to work on your research. And part of that grant proposal writing is making sure that you 
can elucidate how the findings will benefit society and what gaps in our knowledge might be there that you can help fill with your research. Not just an academic exercise for me, I think. I really, I, I would like to see what I've done in the nonprofit world as a consumer advocate be able to change into science communication. So being able to communicate practical ways to make changes, yeah. For people who are listening, they're like, oh, this person gets to do a lot of fun things. How can find fun? It sounds fun to me. How would people... I'm fascinated by it. Uh... Yeah, right? So how can people go wash from... Wash my hands a lot, though. I always have dry hands because I'm constantly washing my hands. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's fun, but it's also really, really scary. I deal with some of the, some of the bugs most people would never want anywhere near them. <laughs> Actually, I don't really deal with the bugs. I actually deal with just the data files. I'm dealing with the FASTQ files, which is a, you know, um, it's 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 a it's basically just the string of DNA that that we get after sequencing. And so I I'm I'm actually not often dealing with the bugs themselves. Very rarely um, am I going out and doing the sample collection or doing the grow up in the lab. I'm just getting that that file at the very end, which also has quality scores that are associated with each of those DNA bases. And, and I'm doing the, the analytics um, and the data analysis on just those files, which are basically um, it's pattern recognition, you know? So I'm, I'm trying to recognize the patterns in the DNA that would say, oh, that's this gene, or oh, that's that gene, or oh, this is an integron structure. Oh, wow, this is the plasmid. So yeah, so that's what I think is fun. So how do you get into it? Or how do you get into activism? So that's say I was a reluctant advocate. I didn't get into this because I necessarily thought I wanted to do advocacy for a job. I got into it because I like the idea of a nonprofit. I like the idea of working to sort of help society and, you know, feel like we're making a difference in the world around us and, and having a positive influence on the world around us. So that's why I worked for a nonprofit originally. The advocacy itself is is a, is a curious I would say there, I don't know if Idealist still exists, but it's a website that has listings of nonprofits and what they're looking for. There's AmeriCorps, I believe, which is sort of like the Peace Corps, but for work that can be done in America. And uh, most of those, if I, mean, I don't know about all of them, but most of them, I think, are nonprofits as well. So those are places to look for job, just simple job hunting. But almost anything that somebody has studied or anything that somebody is passionate about, there is probably a nonprofit sector out there for that work. If we think about social justice movements, there are nonprofits out there that work on. There are, if we think about water quality, there are nonprofits out there that work on that. So it's, it's much bigger than just advocacy, say, in food issues. I, I was interested in food. And so that's how I sort of stumbled upon this. Thank goodness I didn't become a musician. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I think that this has a larger impact for society. But I still listen to music and I still support the art, though. That's that's one thing. I'm very thankful to have so many arts available to us because when, when the world around us doesn't seem so wonderful and great, it's lovely to have the arts to, to help inspire us. So I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't have said I'm, I'm glad I didn't become a musician. I just am not as talented as a musician as I probably am, a, you know, with the bioinformatics work that I'm doing now. So. I know what you meant. I, and it's, it's like having a balanced diet, right? Like you got to have your science, got to have your art. How do you do advocacy as a job? Recently, I've been doing contract work. And, and part of it was I, had, I wasn't working for the nonprofits anymore as a full-time salaried employee, but I had been engaged in the Keep Antibiotics Working Coalition. And so they wanted to keep me at the table. And so we worked out, you know, contracts where I could participate as needed um, and what they needed. And so that contracting work, contracting work can be tough. And I think one of the reasons I'm able and have been able to do it is because I've had a loving, supportive husband. And I've also been in school. 
So, you know, you have to think about practical things like health insurance. And, you know, so being being in school, I would have health insurance. And so that's allowed me to do some contracting work. But contracting work can be tough. I mean, my friends and, and colleagues I know who are investigative journalists, you know, they've got to, it has to be a real passion, I think, in order to commit to not always knowing where your paycheck's going to come from. So that's the one tough thing with contracting work. You really have to um, be able to, I guess, maybe know what know what you can contribute in order to make sure that there are people who um, want to have you have your voice and have your have you have a seat at the table. So that's, yeah, contracting work is, is I don't know that I recommend contracting work. <laughs> I think um, it's sort of, if you can't, you know, I, I think that the full-time salaried positions are definitely long-term more stability, but it's it's been nice to be able to have this while being a full-time PhD student. I think we were wanted to talk about mentorship because I think like mentorship, like a lot of people, they wonder how they they could develop if they had someone like yourself, like kind of like pointing them in the right direction. So what are the type of things that you do to mentor people? Like what are the Ooh. advice, suggestions? Well, yeah. I think for me, I have sought out mentors. And so I look at somebody who has done research over the years and thought, wow, how did they get to the place that they are? And most people, if you're interested in a topic that they're interested in, there will be no shortage of conversation available to you. And so I think seeking out people who are interested in in work that you're interested or in or are doing the work that you could see yourself doing someday, seeking seeking those individuals out and asking for coffee, asking for, you know, just maybe a quick phone call is you know, I think that I think that's part of it. I think I think I think when you find somebody who is maybe younger and passionate and interested in the same area that you are, figuring out how they can have a place at the table as well. And so, mm-hmm. one of the things that the coalition has done is we've changed over the years as we've brought in more and more nonprofit organizations to to think about this issue. And so, maybe is that mentoring? I don't know. I would I would guess that. Yeah. So when I've had conversations with different nonprofits, just saying, if you're interested in this topic, this is our coalition. This is what we do. We'd be happy to have you involved. I think the the more people who are involved in the issue, there is strength in numbers. I Very few advocates I know would say no to to somebody who's interested and engaged in, in wanting wanting an extra an extra set of ears or an extra set of eyes on a problem and, and you know, and, and having intellectual engagement or, or, you know, policy engagement or other other types of engagement. So, yeah, seek out seek out the people or the nonprofits or the or the researchers, academic researchers who are who are interested in, in areas that you're interested in. And and, um, yeah, and, you know, don't be afraid to introduce yourself. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to sort of get engaged and get involved. Most people are very kind and will respond kindly if you're interested in their topics. Give it a try. Like, worst case scenario, you're going to get a no. Like, who's going to be mean to you in an email? Or, right? Like, yeah, no one. No one. And if they are, it's more a reflection on them than it is on you. So I've only ever had one person be mean in an email. And I think they, <laughs> I think I deserved it. <laughs> For people who want to follow along with like you and your development as you kind of go through things like I think it's kind of fun to have like one person to kind of follow is there but in a, in a fun way not like free way so like how, how... <laughs> I'm on Twitter I'm on Facebook <laughs> yeah. I have a LinkedIn like I do have all the social media I am not as good about posting as I should be my LinkedIn I have not put nearly as much up there as I should with what I have done in my career and I recognize that and with Twitter I am so haphazard about what I put. And because it is my own personal opinion, sometimes there'll be random things that go up there too. Like yesterday I was sort of like, so what is this dragon? You know, the, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if you um, 
I don't know that it's worth going there on this podcast, but every once in a while there will be sort of odd little things in my Twitter that will people wonder why is she posting about that? But for the most of it, most of my um most of my Twitter feed does tend to be about issues that um, revolve around antimicrobial resistance and food animal agriculture. And so that's one place to to see to see what I've, I'm up to. What's um, your handle? I think it's S Groters. So just S-G-R-O-O-T-E-R-S. But you can also find me through my full name. So Susan Vaughn Groters is, is the Twitter. Mm-hmm. Facebook, I tend to keep, I don't know, it's a mix. I, I That is not as, that is also, um, that's for close friends, but my colleagues are also my friends. And so probably not a way to find me as publicly. And then LinkedIn, I have a number of connections, but again, I am not, I'm not as good about putting up there the work that I've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Twitter seems to be the place. Twitter probably, yeah, and Instagram. Yeah. Every once in a while, you'll find some fun pictures, but there are lots of pictures of my dog <laughs> on Instagram too. Um, so yeah, probably Twitter. And that was Susan von Gruders, consumer advocate, PhD student, policy analyst, associate, centered on antimicrobial resistance. In this episode, we got to learn how she got started, what she's passionate about, what she wants to do once she gets her PhD, the stuff she's worked on for the last you know 15, 20 years. Thank you for joining us today with Learning with Lowell. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.